So if you have a Bible with you this morning, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Psalm. The book of Psalm, Psalm chapter 1 is what we'll be looking at today. And I'm excited about bringing this message to you. I've been working on it actually all through the fall when I had a little extra time here and there and putting together the final touches on it this week. But uh, Psalm chapter 1 is probably one of the all-time favorite psalms for the person who's in Christ, who's familiar with the Psalter. I'd say Psalm 23, probably the most famous psalm, and after that, maybe Psalm 1 is the one that most of you at some point or time have maybe committed to memory or meditated on, thought about. So the title of the sermon this morning is Two Paths in Life, Two Paths in Life, Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing these songs of praise this morning in our time of worship. As we continue worship through the word, we thank you for giving us psalm, the whole Psalter, all 150 psalms that point us to, to your majesty, to your splendor, to your grandeur, your glory, that point us even, in a sense, to Christ, who alone is able to fulfill many of what the Psalms are pointing us to. And we pray that as we look at the two paths of life that are laid out for us here in the very beginning of the Psalter here in Psalm 1, that you would use this familiar Psalm to help um, to bring conviction, clarity, and a new direction for a new year in the life of our church and in the life of us as individuals. And I pray that it would be a glorifying time for us to think through and to commit ourselves to you yet again here this year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've sat through a lot of graduations in my day, as maybe you have. As you know, there are kindergarten graduations, right, where the kids are lovely and cute, and those can oftentimes bring a a joyful tear to a mother's eye. There's an eighth grade graduation, kind of a big milestone from middle school into high school. There's high school graduation. Maybe for many of you, that would be the biggest memory of a milestone, again, in your life uh, when you graduate from high school. There's college graduation for those of us who've been to college, and there's there's graduate school graduations, And, and like you... I've sat through many of those throughout my life, and believe it or not, the graduation that I remember the most was my eighth grade graduation. I remember graduating from Bleckley County Middle School in Cochrane, Georgia. I was getting ready to go to high school, and I was sitting there in the gym, in our middle school gym, wearing those uncomfortable new dress shoes. I don't know if I owned a pair of dress shoes before that day, but you got to have dress shoes when you wear a cap and gown to look your best for graduation. And while I'm sitting there, the speaker gets up to give the commencement address, and he read a poem in which I have never forgotten. It's a familiar poem to many Americans. It's written by Robert Frost, the title, The Road Not Taken. Allow me to read it to you this morning. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood. 
and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I remember sitting there in the eighth grade thinking, well, that speaker is sharing a poem of something of profound truth, that we all have a choice to make really each day in life of which road we are going to take. And truth be known, there are really only two roads in all of life. There are really only two paths which you can take. There is the way of the righteous, and there is the way of the wicked. There is the way of the godly, and there is the way of the ungodly. There is the high road, and there is the low road. There is God's road, and there is the road of the world. There is the road that leads to happiness in God, and there is the road that leads to the guilt and the shame of sin. And every person's life, and to some degree their future, is marked by the choices they make. And each person must choose wisely, for pathways lead to two locations. Two different roads lead to two different futures. Decisions determine destinies. And the road that a person chooses marks the course of his or her life. And surely, you know this isn't just a Robert Frost truth in that poem I read, but comes from the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, here in Psalm 1, we see those two different paths of life. One road leads to blessing, and the other to cursing. One to salvation, and the other to destruction. There are only two roads in life, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and they lead to opposite destinations, one to life and the other to death. One leads to heaven, while the other road leads to hell. And on this very first day of the new year, how fitting it is for you and for me to examine our lives this morning to see which path we're really on. It may be that this very morning on January the 1st, 2023, that you need to get on a new path. It may be that you need to change course. It may be that you discover that you are on the wide path that leads to destruction, and you realize that you cannot enter heaven or through the narrow gate on your own. You must come through Christ. And this morning, I, I call you to examine your life to examine your habits, to examine yourself, to see whether or not you are in the faith. Psalm 1, 
is a fitting introduction to the Psalter that summarizes the two ways open to mankind, either God's way or your own way. And this psalm is classified as a wisdom psalm, one that provides guidance for godly living. Like a clearly marked entrance to the path of righteousness, it serves as an introduction to the entire book of Psalm, directing all travelers to the path of God's blessedness. Intentionally placed in the beginning, Psalm 1 serves as the appropriate preference to the remaining 149 psalms. The earliest psalm would be Psalm 90, written by Moses, a psalm of Moses. The latest psalm was written, we think, potentially as Psalm 126. And these two psalms, Psalm 1 to Psalm 90, were written about a thousand years apart. And in those thousand years, God compiled through various writers, mainly David. You have the sons of Korah. We have Asaph. You have the other psalm of Moses that I mentioned. But over a thousand years, these were pulled together into five books. That first book would be Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. And in the beginning of book one is Psalm 1 that we're studying this morning. And for our study this morning, I have taken and adapted Steve Lawson's excellent commentary on the book of Psalms and the Holman Old Testament commentary series. I've taken and adapted his outline because it serves us so well together this morning. And so this psalm divides equally into two major headings. Number one, we're going to call it the way of the righteous, and we'll see that in verses one through three. And then number two, the way of the wicked. Psalm uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. So we'll start with number 1, the way of the righteous, 1 through 3. And you see in your outline there, satisfied in the Lord. Verse 1, satisfied in the Lord. And then under that would be your first blank, favor from God. Favor from God. And the psalm starts off with that very memorable phrase, blessed is the man. That's how it starts off. And so we're saying blessed is the man is showing favor from God. This psalm begins with an empathetic declaration that God's abundant favor will rest upon the person who lives for God. That favor is communicated through the word blessed. The Hebrew word literally means to be happy. The Hebrew word is also in the plural, which means that there is a way of intensifying this meaning. The word blessed is actually repeated twice It actually says, blessed man, blessed. The phrase could be translated as, oh, how very happy, or the happiest, or happy and blessed is the man. And what is being communicated is that the soul's satisfaction is pleasure found in the Lord himself. Our happiness is not found in the world. We flipped through a few channels last night, as maybe you did, trying to see about bringing in the new year in New York and at Times Square and other places to our disgust. You know, we tried to flip through and find something fun to watch and something to keep us awake. And we're like, that's disgusting. That's disgusting. That's immodest. You know, we could do better than this. This is, this is a shame, right? And it's just a reminder the world's trying to find pleasure in all the gaudy external things of the world. But our happiness is only really found in God. Our happiness is not found in the world. Our happiness is not found in other people. Our happiness is not found in our earthly possessions our fickle feelings, or especially in our own selves. For those of us who are in Christ this morning, our happiness is only found in God. This is essentially what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. Turn with me to Matthew 5, and you'll see this 
blessed is the man, elaborated on, again, by Jesus in that familiar place of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Let me just read for us verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I think about blessed is the man from Psalm 1, I think about the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, just elaborating a little further of how blessed we truly are. And these Beatitudes are teaching us that we are blessed meaning that we are happy in God when we think less of ourselves. We are happy in God when we are humble, when we are merciful, when we are pure, when we are making peace with others, when we are persecuted for righteousness. We are satisfied in God when we hunger and when we thirst for righteousness. Do you know the difference that you can really tell between the man who is happy in God and the man who's happy in the world? Well, all you gotta do is just take away all that they have. Take away all their possessions. Take away their pride and their occupation. Take away their friends and their family. Take away their retirement. Take away their home. And take away their health. And in that moment, the righteous man will be happy in God. But the wicked man will curse God and will be sad and depressed for the rest of his days. That's how you tell the difference is you strip everything away and if you're still happy in God, then you understand what it means to be truly blessed, to have received the favor of God through Christ. And that favor of God is not always physical for primarily it's spiritual and eternal. And so we are satisfied, back to Psalm 1, we are satisfied in the Lord when we receive favor from God. And we are, your next blank there says, number two, fulfilled in God. fulfilled in God. Number two, again, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. True happiness, again, is not fickle and fleeting. True happiness comes from God's character, from his attributes, and from his presence. And God fills every born-again Christian with his love and his wisdom and his peace and his power. And true happiness, this favor again, is true for all who trust in the Lord. You really only trust someone that you are close with and that has proven themselves to you over and over again. And as a Christian, you're closer to God than anyone else because he has proven his love to you over and over and over again. No better place than Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his love. He shows us his love for us that while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And because of this relationship that God has uh, demonstrated through Christ, he, he pursues us 
and we can trust him. And because we trust him, we can have true happiness as we enjoy his presence in our lives. Uh, I love Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We are fulfilled in God when we are in his presence, and when we are taking refuge in him. It's Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We are fulfilled in God's presence. We are fulfilled in taking refuge in the Lord, and we are fulfilled when we rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. I hope that you are experiencing favor from God and fulfillment in God. And you certainly won't find, again, what you're looking for in anything that the world has to offer. The, the world's delicacies may be sugar-coated and covered with sprinkles, but they leave you empty inside and longing for more. While the blessings of God resound with rock-solid truth, with joy unspeakable, and with a permanent place in the presence of Christ. That's why we're so blessed. We're in him. And the way of the righteous is truly satisfied in the Lord, but he's also, look at B in your outline, he's also separated from the world. Separated from the world. So he's blessed, satisfied in the Lord, but he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Let's elaborate again on that a little bit. Number one, he refuses secular beliefs. He refuses secular beliefs. A righteous person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This means that he rejects wholeheartedly secular philosophy and the self-focused values of the wicked. He, he refuses the worldview that places man at the center of the universe and entices him to live by his own standards of morality and his own pursuit of pleasure. This means that he refuses homosexuality. He refuses transgenderism. He refuses fornication as a way of life. He, he refuses pornography. He refuses to allow himself to use foul language. He refuses himself to be one who curses. He refuses corrupt talk. He refuses vulgarity. He refuses making fun of others. He refuses gossip. He refuses slander. He, he refuses to laugh at the world's jokes. This means that Christians don't believe in the Big Bang, macro evolution, or human beings coming from monkeys. This means that Christians don't believe that all religions are the same, that all people are good by nature, or that all roads somehow lead to heaven. That this means that we should do exactly what 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so not only does the righteous person refuse secular beliefs, but they also, number two, they refuse sensual behavior. They refuse sensual behavior. They are not standing in the way of sinners. This phrase infers that the righteous person's behavior resists the lure of the crowd to participate in sinful activities. And it seems what may be emphasized here would be sensual living. The way of sinners leads to fleshly cravings. It leads to carnal desires. It leads to lustful actions. 
Proverbs 1.10 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And to refuse sinful behavior means that not only are you refusing the temptations presented by those in the world, but you're resisting the temptations that arise out of your own heart. According to James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so instead of standing in the way of sinners, God calls us to draw near to him, to draw near to him through Christ. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so this is what we're seeking to do as we look to Christ. We also see here in verse one, your next blank, that the righteous man, number three, refuses shameful belongings. He refuses shameful belongings. He does not sit at the seat of scoffers. When this verse says that the righteous man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, we start to see a progression here. The person is not to walk down this path leading to disaster. They are not to stand on the edge looking in. They are not to sit in the presence of evil in a way that shows that they have given in. And with each parallel unit of thought, the expression becomes more and more intense. Walking, standing, sitting. This signifies a progression from a casual influence of ungodly people to collusion with them in their scorn against the righteous. It's the one who is not characterized by this evil influence who is blessed, that is, he is right with God and he enjoys the spiritual peace and joy that results from his relationship with God. And when it says that the godly person does not sit at the seat of scoffers, it means that he refuses to associate with those who mock God. He avoids close relationships with blasphemers, with infidels, with atheists, with those who are sexually immoral, with the drunkard. And no matter how prosperous they may be, because as 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company ruins good morals. Or James 4, 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is at enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 1. You see this spelled out a little bit further. Romans chapter 1, we know this passage well, but this is where our culture is headed. And if we're not careful, many in the church are beginning to wink at that which is happening in our culture. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 26, certainly addresses this head on. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. You ask, we know we're talking about homosexuality, we're talking about fornication, we're talking about adultery, we're talking about transgenderism, we're talking about any sexual sin. Romans 1 specifically focuses a fair amount on 
homosexuality, and it goes on to talk about bestiality, and it just goes down from there. Just awful, horrible stuff, right? And at the end of verse 30, or 27, excuse me, at the end of verse 27, it says that those who live like that, it says that they will receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. What's the due penalty, you ask? We'll skip down to verse 32. Verse 32 says, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So we understand that those who practice sexual immorality of any kind deserve God's wrath, deserve God's judgment, deserve to die. Those who do those things, who practice such things, they walk in that path. We're not saying they're tempted. We're all tempted. But when someone embraces and they celebrate and they walk in that path saying, this is who I am, this is my identity, now they have gone beyond I'm tempted and they have embraced sinful immorality as a lifestyle. And those who practice those things deserve to die. We get that. But here's what I want to make sure you see. The very next part of verse 32 says, they not only do them, but give hearty approval, one translation says, but gives approval to those who practice them. You see what's happening in the church today? We may say, well, oh, I, I, I don't practice same-sex relations, but, you know, those who do, everybody, nobody's perfect. And can't we just embrace, can't we just love one another? I mean, what's really so bad with monogamy and heterosexuality in a relationship? Can't we offer the same kind of grace or acceptance to a homosexual relationship? And this passage couldn't be more clear. It's not only a sinful thing to practice it, but to give approval to those who practice it, which means that if you condone it, if you allow it, if you accept it, if you don't confront it, then somehow you're aiding that pathway to continue. And so it's just a reminder here again of how quickly we move from walking to standing to sitting. And so we're learning that the righteous man must find his satisfaction in the Lord, not the acceptance of man, not the popular pat on the back from our culture. We're looking for happiness and satisfaction in the Lord. And in order to really find that, you must be separated from the world. You've got to be saturated, your next outline number C says, you've got to be saturated with the word. The only way to prevent this is to go back to the word, because if your mind's full of the culture, and if you would have watched all the New Year's Eve parties last night on TV, you would just be like, oh, I guess this is what's popular in the world. This is what works in the world. And you've got to take your head out of the world and say, no, I've got to get back into God's word. What does the word of God say about what's happening? So are we saturated with God's word because the righteous man, number one, delights in the word. He delights in the word, verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The delight of the godly is not focused on temporal things. It's in that which lasts forever, the word of God. It's Isaiah 40, verse eight. We know that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God will stand for how long? Forever. It never changes. It doesn't change with the time. It doesn't change with 2023. It doesn't change with whatever is coming down the pike in the future, right? The person who knows genuine joy reads and meditates on God's word. They love God's word. They greatly desire time in God's word. They, they treasure God's word over everything else in life. And this kind of hunger for the Bible is a clear indication of the new birth as our new nature longs for the truths of God. It's what 1 Peter 
2.2 says, like newborn, newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Or how about Psalm 119.33-36, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. I mean, the Psalms are full of that kind of stuff, right? Delight yourself in the law of the Lord. And too many times as Christians, we're like, I kind of delight in my hobby. And I kind of delight in this love song. And I kind of delight in this special thing that I enjoy doing. I delight, it could be as simple as I, I delight in working out or eating fine food or I delight in, in all kinds of stuff. And to a degree, some of that's okay, right? Some of that's like, hey, I can enjoy all things to the glory of God. But the problem is our hearts are too easily satisfied. We're too easily satisfied with temporal pleasures. And the word this morning of Psalm 1 is you got to come back to God. The favor is in God. It's found in his word. And to delight in the word of God means, again, do you take pleasure in God's word? Do you desire earnestly to be in God's word? Do you get your gratification for the day by being in God's word? Do you enjoy being in God's word? Why? Why, you ask, should I be that way? Because it's only God's word that can stir your true affections. It's only by being in God's truth and immersing yourself in his word that your heart begins to experience the joys that are unspeakable. It's only found in God's word. It's not found in anything that this world has. God's word gives you hope. God's word reminds you of who you are. God's word reminds you of your identity. God's word reminds you of your worth and your value as a person. All things come from learning who you are in Christ. And what is your plan this year about being in God's word? I mean, we're, my wife and I were talking about New Year's resolutions and many times we've discussed the value of those and how we all break those within a week, you know? So it's like, ah, oh, should we make any or not? I don't know. But if there's one resolution, it's like, get in God's word. Pick a plan, pick a time, pick a passage, pick a book, do anything. Don't start the year thinking like, well, I'll just kind of read when I have time and I'll get in God's word at some point. It's like, no, make a decision right here, right now. You know what, this year, I'm gonna read the New Testament. This year. I'm going to read the whole Bible. This year, I'm just going to read a chapter a day. I'll go from book to book, but I'm going to pick a book, read a chapter, go to the next book, read a chapter a day. I don't care what you do. I really don't care what plan you do. Just do one. Just do something, right? Be in God's word day by day by day, or you're going to have a sad year. You're going to have an awful year if you're not in God's word, because that's the only place that satisfaction and true joy come. Our delight is in God's law, therefore the righteous person, number two, dwells upon the word. Dwells upon the word. Again, verse two, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he does what? He meditates day and night. This isn't the sermon of just check the box. I read my chapter today. I'm good to go. Took my five minutes, my ten minutes, and I read the chapter, so now I'm good. It's like, no, no, you got to take that word that you read, and you meditate on it day and night throughout the day. This kind of appetite for God's word leads to 
to, to the righteous person meditating on it day and night. We constantly should want to set our minds on the truths of the Bible. And we are doing this throughout the day because God's word reveals the glory of God and his supremacy over all things. Certainly Joshua 1.8 comes to mind here. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do according to all that's written in it. Then you will find prosperity and success. And I don't think that prosperity and success is talking about monetary gain. I think it's talking about peace with God, success in your Christian walk, a godly marriage, a godly relationship with your teenagers. You need God's word for that. You need God's word for everything. You need God's word to help shape your thoughts and your thinking and your time and your effort in God's word will begin to be demonstrated in how deep your relationship with the Lord really is. Those two things are always connected. No time in the word means a distant relationship with God. Much time in the word, meditating on it, thinking through it, praying through it, worshiping through it, your relationship with God begins to grow. There's just no other way to it. There's no way as a Christian that you can grow without you personally. Not just being fed God's word through a podcast or a sermon, though we love to hear God's word preached. I love to hear God's word preached. I'm listening to podcasts all week long. I'm like, bring it on. If you haven't heard the Puritan Conference at Grace Community back in October, my wife and I have been listening to that. Excellent. It's so rich, filling our souls every day. But you better be spending time in God's word. It better be you and a Bible and a cup of hot chocolate for you kids, a cup of coffee for you. For, uh, you can have coffee if you're younger, I guess. But, you know, the idea is like just get somewhere and get in God's word. Your, your maturity, your spiritual success, your true joy, it depends on your time in God's word. And so we want to learn to dwell on it. And then number three, we want to dig into the word. Dig into the word. Number three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. We are to be like that tree that's discussed here. It's planted by streams of water. This is sending some roots down deep to hold us secure. This is digging into God's word to be properly grounded. This is Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I mean, hopefully that's what we want to do, right? We want to, we want to receive all that Christ is. We want to walk with him. We want to be rooted and built up in Christ. We want to be established in the faith. That requires more than the seed being just sown on the path. It's got to go down into the soil. And it's got to take root and to germinate and to build roots down deep. That requires truly being planted in the fertile soil of God's word so that it can bear fruit. This tree appears in Psalm 1. Some of the commentators say that the tree may have even been transplanted. It was somewhere else and they moved it from this barren wasteland into this place that would be next to the stream of water. And it wasn't just a little water. It says streams of water. <coughs> this indicates the plural again, <clears throat> excuse me, indicates that there was much water, maybe even rivers of water, channels of water. There was more water than this tree could ever use up. I love 
to uh, be informed of various writings of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as do you, and he wrote a book entitled All of Grace. And in that book, All of Grace, he writes about um, the grace of God being like a river. And he equates the grace of God to the Thames River, which is the mighty river that flows through downtown London. And he talks about, imagine a fish that were a small fish, and if that fish were afraid, that if it took in too much water, that it might somehow drink the Thames River dry. And as only Spurgeon could say it, he says, oh little fish, fear not, drink in more, for you can never exhaust or empty the grace of God. As a little fish, you just drink it in and drink it in. You will never put a dent in the grace that is provided through God. And that's what we are. We're like that tree planted by water, and we're just taking it in, taking in the water, the river of God's grace. This leads to number four in your outline, draws from the word. The righteous man draws from God's word. Again, the end of verse three talks about how that they're bearing fruit in season, out of season. The leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. And so there you see four things I just mentioned. We don't have time to get into each of them, but there's stability, there's productivity, there's constancy, there's prosperity. Here we read in the rest of verse three, here drawing from the word that the person who delights in God's law will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which draws its life-sustaining nourishment from the stream. It's not a desert. This is not a dry or brittle ground we're talking about. This is a well-watered area. This is an area with plenty of rain, lots of sunshine, and lots of nutrients needed to help this plant grow and be productive. And I love the tree illustration again. D.L. Moody talks about how all the Lord's trees are evergreen. The leaf never withers. It never stops producing fruit. It's not like there's a season for fruit and a season for barrenness. It just always green, always bearing fruit. The God-centered life draws upon its spiritual vitality from God's word, which is, again, compared God's word here to many streams. The word streams is referring to that abundant, overflowing um, supply of strength and sustaining grace all contained within God's word. And so the godly sets down deep roots into a reservoir which will never run dry. The word of God is constantly refreshing us and reviving us and renewing us and cleansing us and it satisfies all who draw upon it. Jesus said in John 15, four through five, abide in me and I in you. And as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless, what? You abide in me, Christ says. You you can't bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus said, John 15, 5. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. And so when dwelt by the living word, the leaf of the righteous does not wither, meaning all that he does will have eternal value and lasting results. Furthermore, he is like a tree that yields its fruit in its season, picturing again continual fruitfulness in every season of life, whether in the good times or in the bad times whether in the midst of great triumph or difficult trial. So potent is God's word that whatever he does prospers. 
he will enjoy a spiritually enriched life, the fullest life imaginable. I mean, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 19, just another cross-reference. You're there in Psalm 1. Flip over to Psalm 19. That might be my third favorite psalm. I told you 23, 1, 19. I mean, we all have our favorites, right? But man, Psalm 19, uh, let's look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This is what God's word does for you. If you're feeling tired, you're feeling weary, and I'm not just talking because you were up till 12.30 or 1 a.m. last night, but you're feeling tired in life. You're kind of spent a lot in 2022, and you need to be refreshed. It's, it's all in God's word, and this is what God's word does. It, it revives your soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I love that. It's better than gold. It's better than honey. That means he's got security for the future and it tastes good in the moment. You got it both in God's word. It's everything that you could ever imagine is found in God's word. And so we're being reminded that the way of the righteous is satisfied in God. The way of the righteous is separated from the world. And the way of the righteous is saturated in God's word. If a person is truly in this place in their life, then their thoughts will be upward. Their actions will be godly. Their God-controlled activities will prosper. They will live in divinely directed fulfillment. This is something that money can't buy. This is something that the world could never give you. This is something that every true Christian longs for. This is something worth committing this year of 2023 into pursuing, that you and I would walk in the path of the righteous. How come? Because the wicked are not so. You ready for a transition? Because that's what happens here in verse four, the wicked are not so. And so let's examine verses four through six, the way of the wicked. A in your outline says they're corrupted internally. And in your next blank, number one, useless like chaff. It says again in verse four, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And so what we're seeing in verses four through six is a strong contrast with what we have seen in verses one through three. If in verses one through three, we've been refreshed and we've been revived and we're recommitting ourselves this morning to be dwelling on God's word and to walking in the righteous way of God, now we see what happens in contrast to verses one through three, that of the righteous person with the wicked person in verses four through six. And the wicked person is an ungodly person. The wicked are those who pursue their sin. The wicked are those who are on the opposite path than that of the righteous. Are the wicked blessed? No. Are they truly happy? No. Are they truly successful? No. Are they fruitful? No. They may sound like they're having a good time, Again, flip on the TV last night. They look like they were having a good time. I mean, it was disgusting, but they look like they were having fun. And yet it's just so shallow. 
It's so empty. A good time outwardly, they may have success outwardly, but they're not really blessed. They don't have the favor of God. They may seem to have plenty of money and a lot of nice things and everything's moving in the right direction and they can have any sensual relationship that they want at any time they want. But at the core, they are unhappy. They are unfulfilled. They are undone. The the ungodly are neither well-planted, fruitful, enduring, nor prosperous. They are actually useless, verse four says, like chaff. When an ox would tread on the grain, it would separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat kernels could be collected and made into bread, but the chaff was thrown away. The chaff would be blown away by the wind. Isaiah 17, 13 says, the nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. Jesus talked about how the unbelievers are as chaff in Matthew 3, 12. His winnowing fork in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Could it be any more clear what Psalm 1 is talking about? The ungodly, the unrighteous, the wicked man is like chaff. Chaff is useless. Chaff is unprofitable. Chaff is flailing in the wind. Verse four says that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Don't be useless like chaff and don't be, number two, unstable like chaff. Useless and unstable, why? Because it's blown around like the wind. The wind blows it, it swirls around, doesn't have any direction. James 1, 8 says that the person who doubts God and therefore does not obey him is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says that the wicked man has their eyes full of adultery an insatiable desire for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. I mean, when I, when I read those long list of sins that the unrighteous person is pursuing, I just think about celebrity status. You know, I know there's good celebrities out there, all right? I mean, they're godly celebrities, people we can admire and appreciate their role model. But let's just be honest, so many celebrities, it is a nightmare. Their life is running amok. They are on this wicked path. It sounds like celebrities and, uh, I should say again, wicked ungodly celebrities and wicked ungodly rock stars who become so famous for their talents and then it just destroys them. You remember what happened earlier this year? Jerry Lee Lewis, some of you may remember uh, his name, a rock and roll original, died this past year, 2022, on October 28th. He was the one who wrote a whole lot of shaking going on and great balls of fire. And I know, I know you sang that again this year when you watched Top Gun Maverick, okay? So that's who wrote it, Jerry Lee Lewis. 
And he was a huge hit in the 1950s who even rivaled Elvis Presley with his fame and popularity. You say, well, how come I don't really know that much about him? Well, sadly, Jerry Lee Lewis was a wild man who pursued his lust and his passions all the way to the grave. Shortly after he came to fame, he was on tour in Britain when reporters discovered that the young girl traveling with him, Myra Gale Brown, was his 13-year-old bride and cousin, and that Mr. Lewis was still married to his second wife when he recited vows for his third marriage. According to the New York Times, this obviously caused a huge scandal on both sides of the Atlantic. Lewis had to cut his tour short, and he quickly discovered that his career as a rock star was over. Years of heavy drinking and drug abuse began to take their toil. Therein followed a sad catalog of family catastrophes, health crises, run-ins with the IRS, and the police. Now, what God-fearing Christian would say, I'd like to be on that path. You know, what, what man or woman of God would be like desiring that kind of end of a disastrous life? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? I'm thinking about, you know, the Elvis movie also came out this year, same story. I'm thinking about Whitney Houston, Similar story. At some point, you know, some of these, there may have been a moment where they tried to turn back. I, I don't know about Whitney, but I'm just saying it's the same story. Fame, fortune, and then what happens? Disaster, broken marriages, drugs and alcohol, all kinds of, of horrible things in their lives. They, they become undone, and it's not worth it, right? What, what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? A lot of those stars, by the way, they tried to hang on to their stardom. That's where it just kept getting worse. They, they tasted it, and they're, they're like the biggest show in town, and they had to have it, and they had to keep it no matter what. They would make any compromise, physical health, marriage, whatever, to keep that stardom because that would became their addiction, their, their pride and their own fame. But the Bible says it's empty. It's completely empty. It's like chaff. It's, it's, it's blowing in the wind. The, the, the wicked are like this chaff. They are empty, void, futile, unsubstantial, shallow, worthless. And in the end, the Bible says that chaff is going to be burned in the fire. A wicked man is corrupted internally. We're talking here about total depravity. We're talking about completely sinful, and so he will also be, your next blank in the outline or point says, be condemned judicially, condemned judicially, and then your blank says, will not stand in the judgment. They will not stand in the judgment, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. To not stand in the judgment simply means that the wicked will not have God's acceptance. When they stand before him on that last day, Rather, they will be exposed for who they really are. They won't stand in the judgment. They will be crushed. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it. 
from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire This is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The wicked will be justly condemned in their sin, sentenced to eternal punishment, and spend all eternity in hell. Such corrupt sinners will not be allowed to remain in the assembly of the righteous. And that's what the second half of verse 5 means. Your next blank, they will not stand with the righteous. This means that the wicked will not be allowed to remain in the assembly of the righteous. They will be disciplined. They will be excommunicated. They will be excluded from the joyful fellowship of the saints. Revelation 21, 7 and 8 could not be more clear in comparing the righteous with the wicked The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21 and 22 speaks clearly about the glories of heaven the new heavens and the new earth, the beautiful city. But these chapters also refer to those who don't make it to heaven and those who are outside of heaven because of their own sin. Revelation 22, 15 says, outside, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The only one who will stand with the righteous will be those who were made righteous by Christ's imputed righteousness. This verse is simply saying that the wicked will not be able to stand in the judgment and sinners will not be able to stand with the righteous. They will not be allowed to cohabitate, to share in the glories of, or to receive the same inheritance. Why? Well, verse six says, because they'll be damned eternally. Verse six, number one, says the righteous will prosper, and then we'll see how it's gonna say here as well that the wicked will perish. Number one, the righteous will prosper, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The last verse here summarizes, again, the two ways of life, the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. And this is talking about the highway to heaven or the highway to hell. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous, because he chooses the righteous, he elected the righteous, he redeemed the righteous, and as the righteous have been made righteous by the blood of Christ, they will also have the power to walk righteously by God's strength. And this righteousness that God has given to them will become a righteousness that is received by them and they'll walk in accordance to it. It will be what directs their life. It'll be the path that they're on. They're made righteous and they walk and live a righteous life. Psalm 
37.18 says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. 2 Timothy 2.19, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord watches over the righteous. The Lord is fully informed of all of our ways. The Lord has an intimate personal relationship with the righteous. He is committed to guard them and to guide them and to give his grace to them again and again. But the end of verse 6 says, the wicked will perish. But the way of the wicked will perish. Unfortunately, the unrighteous sinner is the one who refuses to acknowledge his need to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. He would rather keep clinging to his sin than to cling to Christ. He would rather relish in his iniquities than to rejoice in the mercy of God. He would rather be deceived by the devil than to delight in the riches of God's grace because of his own sin, of his own wickedness, and of his own rejection of the love of God. The wicked has sealed his doom. Steve Lawson in his commentary says, the ungodly sinner judged and condemned in the final judgment will be damned forever. The wicked will suffer relentless torment in a real place called hell, always perishing, forever suffering, the eternal wrath of God, never finding relief from God's just vengeance. Psalm 2, 12 says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 9.5 says, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Well, how about it? Which path are you on? It's a brand new day. It's a brand new year, and you have a choice to make. You can choose a path this day. In many ways, God has already ordained and sovereign over everything. You know, that's what God's word teaches, but that doesn't negate the fact that on this day, you still have, humanly speaking, a choice to make. In which direction are you heading? And you, are, are you going to be the blessed man who walks with the righteous, or are you going to be aligning your life with the wicked? Lawson again writes, if you, if you say that you're walking the path of the righteous, this brings on another series of questions to determine the genuineness of your profession of faith. Is there clear evidence of a transformed life that authenticates such a claim? Are you experiencing the blessedness of God's favor? Are you living a separated life distinct from the beliefs and the behavior of the ungodly? Have you made a break from the world? Is your delight in the law of the Lord. So I invite you this day. You say, Pastor, you seem upset. I'm not upset. I'm just trying to divide the word straight down the middle. Psalm 1 has three verses that say that you can have an awesome life in Christ. You can be blessed forever. You can have favor unspeakable. Or you can go the path of the wicked and your life will be like chaff and your life will end in destruction and you'll spend eternity in hell. And on this day, I don't care if you're an older person or a young child, you better take Psalm 1 to heart. 
And you better realize the blessedness that comes through the grace of God through Christ that this morning you could come to him. That this morning he will by no means cast you out. That this morning you don't have to play. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to just do the right things externally because that doesn't get you anywhere anyway. You need to do some earnest soul searching of your heart before God. Do I know him? Do I love him? Do I run to him? Do I find my delight in him? And if that's what you would like to do, then at the end of our service, we'll have a few people standing right here by this door. We would love to talk with you, counsel with you, encourage you. I invite you this day to confess your sin before Christ and he will wash away all your iniquity and he will welcome you into his family and you will have joy unspeakable and eternity to worship him forever and ever. As we consider this message, there's some take-home points to think about. How can you make sure that in 2023 you're walking on the path of the righteous instead of the path of the wicked? Number two, what are you like? What are you planted by? And what kind of fruit are you bearing? Number three, is there any chaff in your life that, le- that needs to be cut away? How can you replace that with leaves that don't wither and a life that prospers? Two paths of life, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Which path are you on? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Psalm 1. Thank you for the encouragement, the clarity, the conviction of the psalmist, of that particular psalm for the Christian certainly brings great hope, encouragement, delight, also brings sobriety to understand the difference between heaven and hell the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And I pray for anyone here who's not in Christ this morning that you would call them to yourself, that you would grant them the ability to repent and to believe, that they would want to run to you, that they would be committing their life to you on this very day. And for those of us who are in Christ today, I pray that we would be reminded of the seriousness of a walk that would be blessed and favored by God all through the gospel. It's all through Christ. And yet in our ongoing progressive sanctification, we want to make the right choices and we want to live righteously because of Christ's righteousness that has been freely given to us. And so I pray that on this day, we would dedicate ourselves to you yet again and that we would delight in your word again and again and that we would maybe commit this psalm to memory and meditate on the truths therein so that we could just be greatly encouraged that we're walking on the right path throughout 2023 and throughout the rest of our lives. So we commit this time to you, our hearts to you as we prepare for the Lord's table. Help us to be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen, quick to confess, quick to make sure that we're right with you and right with those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.